Hello and welcome to Talking Flutes Extra this week with me, the old geezer from London Tan, Jean-Paul Wright. As usual, the intro and outro music is The Baby Elephant Walk by Henry Mancini, performed by the fabulous British flute player Barry Griffiths on a special arrangement using piccolo, C-flute, alto and bass. A big shout out must go to our podcast sponsors, Trevor James Flutes, or TJ Flutes for short. It's well over four years since we began Talking Flutes podcasts and TJ Flutes have been right behind us with their support to enable us to continue to make these. Thank you so much. This week on Talking Flutes Extra and recorded earlier in the summer, I visited North London to the home of the brilliant Hungarian musician, flute player and teacher Noemi Giori. Hailed for her passionate and vibrant performances, as well as the creative, elaborate interpretations that have captivated audiences worldwide, Noemi is quickly establishing a name in the classical music scene as an exceptional and versatile flutist. Today, I am in a beautiful apartment in the north of London with a very special flute player. Naomi Giori. Am I, spe- am I pronouncing this correctly? Ni- Naomi Giori. Oh, hang on. Here we go. Naomi Giori. Giori. Very good. Very well done. Giori. Yeah. So Naomi Giori, a beautiful, beautiful flute player, teacher, orchestral player, soloist, mother, wife. In fact, I think she does everything. And... <laughs> In front of me, and you won't be able to see this because it's a podcast, I have beautiful bowl of strawberries and we've devoured two gorgeous cakes. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you so much, Naomi, for inviting me to your beautiful home today. You're most welcome. Now, obviously, it's a flute podcast. And I'd like to talk about you as a flute player, where it started, your recordings. And no doubt along this route will deviate off which is my way. But I'd like to start by just prefacing something that you've written on your, one of your, on your website and then dissecting that. Very good. And you said, I can clearly remember the thrill I felt when I picked up a flute the very first time, instantly knowing that the notes coming from that instrument were going to narrate my life. So describe that feeling to me and how the narrative of the Naomi that sits before me now has developed from that first note. Yes, so it's it's really very true that I remember this moment. Um, I had a neighbour who was a friend of mine and she played the flute. Uh, So, in fact, although I, I went to many classical music concerts as a child, I first was really enchanted by the flute, hearing this friend play who was not at all a professional. It just somehow really raised my interest. I really wanted to to play this beautiful instrument. So I started to learn the recorder because I was only five years old. And even then, I always put the recorder on the side and I tried to play it as a flute and I I was so looking forward to the day where where I could finally try this instrument because I couldn't I I, I couldn't even you know I I couldn't 
blow into a flute uh, before I didn't have the chance for it somehow. And my grandfather, bear in mind my whole family is completely unmusical. Nobody plays an instrument and my parents didn't play an instrument and uh, my grandfather either. But he had a sort of a crazy neighbor who collected instruments and for some very strange reason he had an old American flute a silver flute that he owned I have no idea how that happened to be in Hungary in the 1980s and because he had heard from my grandfather that I'm musical and I'm interested in music and I would like to play the flute he sold this instrument to my family for nearly nothing uh, I think otherwise we wouldn't have been able to afford a flute and let alone a silver flute. So I began to play on a very high standard flute. We can say, well, of course, I couldn't tell that. But I think the sound of this flute was was absolutely beautiful. And in fact, the person that I passed this on, flute on to also became a flutist. So I feel like it has something special in it because the sound has an incredible depth to it. Now that I talk about it, I would be fascinated to know where this flute is now. I could ask the person that I sold it to to tell me who she sold it to. Uh, it would be nice to know the story of this instrument. But in any case, I remember that I got it, uh, the flute for Christmas, and I assembled it. And and first of all, I could produce a sound. And because I knew some of the fingerings from the recorder, I could play a tune on it. And And it was just an immense thing. It was just incredible. And I think I could feel that, wow, there is so much in it. And now I have to get it out. And I think I still have that. Yeah, I still, I, I just still genuinely love to play. So many people described having a problem with the lack of performances and drive during the pandemic, for example. I think, I think even if I never performed, I, I would still be playing because, because of this huge pleasure that it gives me. Now, you grew up in Hungary. Yeah. Whereabouts in Hungary was that? So I was born in Budapest and I more or less grew up in Budapest, not completely because I lived a year in Japan and a year in the US. I wasn't very small, but I was 12 when I moved to Japan for a year mm. and I was 14 when I moved to the US for a year. Both of these were because uh, my mother is a psychologist, a researcher, and she was uh, a guest researcher in both of these places. In Japan, I studied with Laurent Kovacs, who at the time was a guest professor at the Musashino Academy. And in the US, we lived in California. My mother was uh, a guest researcher at Stanford. And so I studied with Francis Blaisdell, oh, right, yeah. which was absolutely amazing. And then I went back to Budapest, where I continued uh, my studies. I, I went to the Béla Bartók Conservatory and then consequently the Liszt Academy. And then, however, I moved away from Hungary. So for a long time now, I haven't been principally living in Hungary. When did you know that the flute was going to be your future? I was eight when I had a school task to write about who I want to become, like what kind of profession I'm interested in and what kind of things I do in order to become what I would like to be. And again, for a long time, I thought this is just my memory that I wrote about wanting to become a flute player. Then one day I found this notebook and there was this writing. And 
it talked about the fact how I'm gonna become a flautist and I'm gonna travel the world and how I think music teachers should be better respected and they don't earn enough and so therefore I'm always going to provide tickets for my teacher on my concerts and it's there and I can't even I, I, I'm so surprised how on earth as an eight-year-old I even knew what a music teacher would earn or, you know, or, or what kind of respect they would get, because certainly from me and my parents, they were getting a lot of respect, but it stands there. So I'm, I think I was eight, eight and a half. Wow. And you knew then? Yes, I think so. Yeah. And I pretty much do what I wrote there. For people who, who don't know Hungarian music, it is a very special musical culture. Mm. Very, very special. And we were speaking before. I switched the microphone on about the surprise I felt when I first immersed myself into the Hungarian music scene 30 years ago at the the passion the freedom we'll cover musical freedom later mm. but the ability to tell a story taking one one line and make a story out of that so we'll cover that a bit later but playing the flute it's an easy instrument to play fast but playing slowly and soulfully when did you understand that to create real music, it was not necessarily playing fast, but it was creating this, this voice? In other words, when did the voice really start coming out of your instrument? I think playing quick thing, uh, I realized very, very early on, because uh, as you describe in Hungary, there is an excellent education for classical music, which means that uh, everyone has the opportunity to enroll in a music school which has usually very, very highly trained teachers. You have to pay only a small amount of money and you receive an instrument. So basically, a classical music education is possible for more or less anyone, I would really say. So to that comes a very well-built educational system, which means that Hungarian musicians oftentimes are really technically advanced very early on. And it's a strong part of the curriculum to have an outstanding technique. However, as I just told you, I lived in different countries and this was very, very unusual at the time. And that meant that I basically fell out from this system in a sense. And we can say I fell out from this system during quite crucial years. So before enrolling to the conservatory, which is the beginning steps to become professional, which starts at age 14, 15. I was 15 when I, when I enrolled. That meant that although I gained a place at the Bartók Conservatory, which is at the time was for sure the best uh, conservatory. So I did get a place, but I was much behind on a lot of things because while I learned, I think, many, many crucial things in Japan and in the US, they were very different from those that the students in, in Hungary learned. And additionally, because we lived in Sendai and Laurent Kovács was working in Tokyo and in the US, I had to work and collect money for my lessons in both places. I wasn't able to have weekly lessons. So I was working on my own as a very young person for several weeks at a time, very often. And well, that results in a very different kind of development. I was also doing a lot of free explorations, I have to admit. So I wasn't always following <laughs> orders of the teachers, but I was just exploring repertoire pieces, which I loved. 
especially in the beginning years, but I would say even at the start of the academy, I very, very often had the feeling that, well, I'm not going to be the fastest one. I'm kind of behind. And I had to find another way to stand out. I had to really see, okay, who am I? What what can I give? And and I think by the second year of the academy, I felt like I really caught up. And, and by then I could, yeah, I could play X, Y, Z. I was able to do that. But I think therefore always remained a tool to me. I, I don't think that was the drive ever. That couldn't be the central thing because... For a while, let's say at least half a decade, I was in this very competitive environment, but not being able to really be on top of these kind of technical things, which I think was a really, really, really great school for me. Because mm-hmm. in the end, playing fast or being technical is, is only a tool. It's not, it's not the thing. It's not, it's not the art itself. It's one tool in the art. So I think already then I was really focused on the sound. And then later on, I had a really great dental operation, which basically forced me to restart playing the flute. And I had to relearn how to position the flute on my lower jaw. And that, again, made me realize how important sound itself is and how I produce the sound and how I control this process and how I grow in this process, I would say. Let's briefly look at sound because it's the sound that differentiates one place and person to the next person to the person after. Because we can all play the note, but we can't always climb inside the note and make that note alive, you know, give that note life. The difficulty of making a blob on a piece of paper come alive, understanding sound, how have you, I mean, we're going to talk about some of your recordings later, but you have the ability as a flute player to really quickly change tonal colours, to be able to take a note, start in one place, but then the same note that's still there changes colour. How have you developed that? Do you use all your senses? Do you, not just your auditory sense, do you see things? Do you feel things? How is it? I, I, I would say I rather feel things yep. than, than see. And I think I'm really glad if, if that's heard, what you described, because that is one thing that is really important to me. I think I'm definitely always a risk taker in this sense. Yep. So it means that for me, this kind of extremes and extreme color changes or dynamics are at the forefront. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready to sacrifice even some of the perfection on a performance and even on a recording, to be honest. Very often I pick something uh, that is less perfect, but is more musically interesting in this sense because I feel that depicts how I imagine the music moving. And again, that is, for me, that is the core, so to say. I think I experimented quite a lot with the fierce physical technique of sound production, just simply because I have a wish to produce something and I'm trying to understand how to do that. Why I had the wish? Probably because I heard a lot of extraordinary musicians, lots of extraordinary string players and singers. And I, 
I often felt that when I listen to flute players in general, and I don't want to say there aren't are there many extraordinary flute players, but I in general felt that the playing was very much uh, focused on security, yes. somehow security of sound or, uh, or just getting the notes out. And, and that always kind of bothered me. And, and I think I think therefore I always wanted to mimic this kind of fluidity of sound that I that I saw with some of the finest string players and singers. And and so I, th I think it is a lot the inner drive of that sound that, that fascinates me and that I want to evoke when I play. So that is kind of what I imagine and, it, and the whole drive of the air as the piece happens or emerges. I think that is what stands at the center of attention. That doesn't mean that that is not inspired by, let's say, a text that I read or I really love visual arts. Uh, some of my family members are visual artists. So, so I do get inspired by colors, landscapes, painting, sculptures, even just materials. They just live inside me and that all comes out when I play. I don't visualize them while I play, I would say. So. The ability to take a note, if we're going to use a colour, purple, and then graduate that from purple to a hollow brown in the same note, even if it's a semi-brief or you're just dying away. It's an art form, but it is one that differentiates each musician. You get it with brilliant, brilliant singers. They have this ability to have this really big sound and it just fades away into nothing. And as a flute player, we're, we're, we're singers really, aren't we? I agree. And I don't believe that we take enough notice of singers. We don't spend our time listening to singers. Also string players, because string players have this innate ability to be able to change texture with the pressure of that mm. string on the, the, of, from the bow. Yeah. And the sound. I mean, sound is all as a flute player. Mm. Sound is all as us as humans. We communicate via sound. Mm. I have a voice, and whether I choose to to be a London voice, talk like that, mm -hmm. or I talk my usual voice, mm. or I talk as a French way, I don't, don't know mm -hmm. which way to talk. But we all have a voice, haven't we? And we communicate. Do you think that in education today and in flute teaching today, we pay enough attention to the developmental aspects of each individual flute voice? Or are we concentrating on interpretation and the construction of music rather than the freedom to communicate a narrative? Well, uh, I think it's a really large and substantial question to answer. I don't think I can answer it as a whole because I can't answer on the be behalf of so many, even thousands of professors. I think certainly in my studio I do focus on this a lot and perhaps that is well partially because it's a strong uh, part of me but secondly also because uh, at the moment I have my own class in the junior department of the Royal Northern College of Music so I, I, I don't have my own class of university students. However, I have my own class of teenagers and I think that is very interesting because in this age um, finding one's own sound and and showing it and sharing that and finding a voice is 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 something very relevant and something um oftentimes not 
so easy and I don't say that that becomes easier later on it it changes the way the way I work with uh, 20 year olds is uh, is different you can work with them differently and and I think find the question of finding your sound is at a different stage by then and I think therefore there is huge attention on this in my class I mean it's it's what you need to progress in peace steadily with a good straight back and with pride I think as a as a young player and I think it's tremendously beautiful to see how students grow in this process and and how they become more and more daring in their playing and express things and I think this was the biggest thing um, during the pandemic that when I first started to teach online I felt like oh my god I'm losing all of this and that's when I realized how much I'm working actually on the sound because at first I found it so difficult to work on this aspect in depth online as well and suddenly I thought oh my god like how am I gonna continue teaching I'm missing the thing and then as I as I learned I found a way how to work with that online as well and now it's no problem of course I always still much prefer to do it in person but I think that also showed me actually how much attention there is on sound in my lessons I haven't real I I probably wouldn't have realized that so clearly had I not uh, had this experience of 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 uh, switching online finding your sound to me has always been finding yourself and the ability to begin to open yourself up because if you can open yourself up by beginning to understand who you are the sound sort of develops i agree because uh, sorry to interrupt there but i agree because i think sound is well first of all to produce a sound you have you have to understand the process Uh, so you inspect something in great detail then you have to want to know what you want. You have to want to know what do I do with this with this knowledge. And then you have to have a curiosity. What else can I do and how do I explore that and how do I work with that? And this is what I always tell my students as well. I think the beauty of that is that once you can do that on one field, you can do it on any. And you can you you, you know the process. You know this beautiful process. And I think it's it's basically how we we should live right so so we should we should a learn to understand slow down inspect take it in then have some goals okay this is what i would like i try to do it aha is there another way so you get curious you start to experiment you start to explore you start to go this way you start to go that way and i think I think when 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 you live like that, it can be only good. Basically, that's how I see it. Because you 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 know where you are in the process, and I think that that is also excellent um, tool to handle criticism, uh, to to handle um, moments where you just fall on your nose and things don't work out or when you feel really cornered, because this process you can always take up. You, 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 you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it always allows you to move and not to get stuck, I guess. 
So you can develop your voice by developing your your inner self, yourself. As soon as you you begin to bloom, then your sound blooms. But crap happens in life. Yeah, lots. <laughs> and that does have an effect on us as a musician. Yeah. And our well, our general well-being. How do we or how do you certainly when you're teaching teenagers mm. that is such a hard time in their lives how how can you get them to sort of place aside what's going on in their lives to free up what they're doing with their music because it's I don't want to play I don't want them to place things aside I never want them to place things aside wonderful to incorporate everything in yes. yeah yeah, so, so in fact, I have accompanied uh, through my students lots, serious health issues, all sorts of difficult life situations. I think the point is you don't have to put these things aside because, because they are essentially part of you and part of your life. I think, I think what is really, really, really beautiful about making music and probably, most probably, that's why I ended up becoming a musician, is because whatever you go through your life, you can still make music and, you, and, and it comes, it, it lives in this music and you can blow it away, for example. You can, you can work with it. It enriches your playing as well. Like being angry gives qualities to your, you, know, you have to learn that as well. You, you, to, 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 all, all these emotions add so much to your playing, I think. And I also don't believe in this protected way of practicing all the time as a, ch a child, because you have, to, you have to have life experiences apart from, from your technique, because that's what makes you and that's what, what, what grows you. So I think they just, they just learn to appreciate to have music. And I think that's why it's so good to have music. They will have difficulties in their lives a lot, whatever you do, because that's how life is. It brings challenges and difficulties and once you have music it's it's always a door for you to 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 go in this world of your own where you can work with these things and explore these things and I really think it will always help to come through these difficult patches when it is your work as well it's a different situation especially when you struggle with the work so for example when I had this dental operation that was really difficult because I it was obvious that I can't play the same way I used to before. So it was really, really hard. But all I could do is to use the same kind of tools that I described of, of just slowing down, restarting the process and, and, and be patient. And, uh, and I think I learned a huge amount. And now I work with these kind of things much better and, and quicker as well. Yeah, so I guess it's just difficulty and beauty of it all, I guess, and carrying that through this decades long of career. I think that's why probably we hear the richness of older players, you know, the way someone sits down to play the most see-through Mozart mm. and then it becomes so rich is because there is the lifetime of these kind of experiences behind. I completely agree with, with that, is that when you have... the thing I, I was once told many years ago to draw on life experiences. When you're playing music and if it's about grief, to be able to almost claw back these experiences. Mm. Because if you're playing it very straight, you're not then conveying grief. 
So all our life experiences we can draw on in a recital or in our practice. And that is important. So I, I totally get that. Life, life is a patchwork of experiences and the most brilliant musicians are often the most complicated ones. Mm. Or um, have very complicated lives. Yeah, and, uh... and they, but they seem to be able to draw on all of this, this tapestry of experience into performance. But I guess also sometimes challenges create you, uh, create this need in you, the need to want to play, the need yes. to want to, well, in a sense, also go back to your own world where you can paint things the way you want mm -hmm. or, or where you can experience things the way you want or where you can explore things without danger because there is no musical police. <laughs> the verse is a critique who can... Yeah smash you but but in a sense there is no music police who will come after you so it's a it's a it's an incredible i think it's just an incredible thing that is there for us how do you get your students because we, we all have to have the bedrock of all our scales our yeah. studies yeah. you have to build the house on firm foundations how do you get them to break away how do you get them to expand how do you get them to take a line and do something magical with it. Again, <laughs> I don't see the breakaway. I, I, I think I think from the first moment when when we pick up the flute, it is music making. So even if it's those, uh, I always start with the moist exercise of the long notes, just chromatically, very easily. And I think we make, in a sense, we make music from this. And when we play the scales, that has also a shape and it has to have an arch. And, and we talk about that all the time. Or a lot of the technical exercises we do, they happen within the piece. So it's not like there is the technique and there is the music. Uh, so so it's, it's like it's all together. When you practice, you make music. And whether that's two notes or whether it's about finding the way you interconnect the notes till the last one and then going up. So whether this is a warm-up or a scale or actually a piece, which is very often... Uh, made up of scales and arpeggios, it's, it's essentially the same thing. Of course, I don't want to say that practicing an F major scale is going to bring the same musical depth as performing Bach B minor sonata, but it is essentially the same material uh, that you are working with in the very same way as you are working with a Bach. I, I remember that uh, my teacher Zoltan Gyöngyösi in the Bartók Conservatory, he, he used to tell me that when he listens to someone, when they come on stage and they tune, when they tune, he can tell how this performance is going to be. And I often felt that that is such an exaggeration and how would you be able to tell at the time I disagreed. But in a sense, I see that very differently now because I feel when you see someone, a musician, for example, the way they pick up their instruments, the way the relationship, the way, yes, they blow into it, the way they listen to that note, the way they respond to the pianist playing that A, let's say, or an oboist in the orchestra, the way they, they actually respond to that, the way they then adjust, just really tells fun fundamentally how they are, what, how, what is their approach what is important to them. And yes, that in a sense outlines how their performance is going to be most probably. 
I like the word, the connection between you and your instrument. Mm. And it's not one that I believe we think enough of. After all, we spend more time with our instrument than we do our partners. Mm. Um, we are one with our instrument. Mm. And there's three words that you say encapsulate you. Connection, expression and sensitivity. They're three very powerful words, but in mm. very different ways. Mm. What does each mean to you? Well, I, th I guess connection on every level, as you say, connecting with myself, the instrument, the music, the audience, the other players. So there is all sorts of connections when we when we do music. And I think we have to react to that all the time. And there that's where sensitivity comes in. Mm. I think you have to be really quick and sensitive and clever how you use that connection, how you and, and how you initiate connections and how you nurture connections how you maintain connections and all of that. And now you have to remind me, what was the second one? The second one, which is one that really encapsulates you, I think, is expression. Expression, expression, of course, yes. Sorry, I'm just so in, in it that I don't have the words pinpointed. Expression is music. Well, that is, that that is, is, the, that is why we do the whole yeah. thing. So it's the to, storytelling, isn't to it? To express what is there in the music. And I think the way it interacts with us as well. So I think just quite recently, I can't remember where I read another interview. I think very often, of course, we read about the importance of the purity of delivering the music and of really respecting the wishes of the composers. And I do agree with this, but for me, I have to admit that the way it is being expressed by different artists is fundamental to me because it is where I feel one Hamlet will be a different than another mm. one. And I think it's the beauty of it. And it's not because that artist doesn't respect the score, but it's because it interacts with that person differently because parts of this will resonate to them differently and it will inevitably create a different uh, result. And, and I think that's why we have so many artists and we need those artists because, because of these colorfulness. And, and, and so I, I really, so I think expression and the way we interact with the score for me is essential. And you said that you heard a certain freedom in my recordings. I think this is that, that I, as I age, I, I dare and I want more of this to come out. And, and I want to admit that this is something important to me. Uh, of course, not saying that respecting the wishes of the composers isn't, but to let the things that resonate with me, to let them live and let them really come out as they are. And you like pushing things, don't you? For example, the Royal Academy of Music, really prestigious institution. If you would institution. like to complicate your lives, yes, if you want to complicate uh, yourself, just call me. I can, in one second, give you tasks and uh, all sorts of things like that. Nobody had done a, a performing PhD yes. at the Royal Academy of Music. Nobody. Yes. I mean, not no flutist. No, that's right. Sorry, no flute player. Yes. Why? Why? I mean, first of all, I I guess I I come from an academic family, which means that the proportion of PhDs <laughs> in my family is very high. 
I, I have I, I don't think I felt that uh, my family members thought that I'm not intelligent enough or anything like that. But, you know, it's a thing that uh, lots of people did around me. So it didn't seem something, you know, so alien to me, let's say. The other thing is that I'm really driven as a teacher. And for example, in Hungary, you have to have a PhD to, to become a professor. So if I ever, for example, want to teach at the Liszt Academy or other higher education institution, I must have a PhD. But if I want to do something, I'm just the kind of person that I really, I mean, if I spend the time, I want to spend the time and energy on something on a really high level and on a level that will really bring me forward and where I really learn a lot. And because I discovered that the Royal Academy of Music offers a PhD, so that, that also means that that is a qualification which will be recognized anywhere and everywhere. So because there are so many forms, DMA and DLA and this and that, but I thought, okay, PhD is always everywhere understood and, and uh, appreciated. Plus, I discovered that there was no flautist and I'm in London. So I thought, all right, this is it. I have to do it. And I just had my first daughter born. And for some silly reason, I always thought that when I will have small children, it will be the time in my life <laughs> when I will have time to learn and to learn some new things. So this was a plan for a long time and I'm forever thankful for my mother never ever telling me that this would be something outrageous to think. She, she, she always said, okay, fine, okay, fine, but make sure that you still study before having kids as well. She's, you know, she always said that, but she never said that in a cautionary way. And so I thought, okay, here I am. I will have this little baby and it's, it's perfect. I'll now do the PhD. Now I will have time for it. And that was, you know, that was the idea. And then, of course, I learned that the reality of doing a PhD is very, very different. And first of all, I didn't get in. So I had to apply second time, which only made my will stronger, I have to say. Yes, I think it was a tremendous journey. I learned really a lot. I learned in every way to be more focused, to be more driven, to really be resilient, I think. I certainly learned to write, to read very differently. Therefore, to read the score very differently mm -hmm. and also to kind of focus my performances very differently, I think. And especially writing the thesis and being pregnant with a second child and giving birth. And I don't know, I, I think that really put me through a period which was, I really didn't see how I'm going to come through all of that. But I did. And I feel like that was, it feels like that was the ultimate training in a sense. I kind of feel like, all right, now I'm in a stupid way. I'm fit for life. Even before I'm a person who is there, you know, I'm there. Yes, you can count on me. I may not be perfect or I may not be this or that, but I'm there. I'll do it. I'll do my best. I, you can, you, I'm a person you can count on, but I feel like that has really multiplied because I feel like, yes, I can persist and, 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 and persist and, and, and correct and take it in and reconsider and again and again, because a lot of doing the PhD is a lot of work like that and just sheer persistence and patience and preservation, I think. So yeah, it was a beautiful school. Yeah, I think.
You mentioned your beautiful daughters. How has being a mother changed you as a musician? Ah, oh my God. I think it made me even more eccentric, <laughs> uh, which I find in a way really difficult because I guess being a mother, you have to be, uh, and I am very organized and you have to be very organized and very reliable and precise and you have to provide this stability for your children. And yet I just want to be more extreme and change things and be extremely bold, which, which means that I see in context where I want to push things and where I want to go further and really, let's say, break boundaries, so to say. Sometimes it scares me that uh, as a mother, I may, perhaps I shouldn't be like that because you have to be, in a sense, as a mother, you have to provide this kind of stability and perhaps it is, in a sense, you should be calmer, I guess, or that, that is how I, I have seen motherhood. But then again, when I think of those things, then I think, well, you know what, they, they should see how I think about it and then they, they will themselves become more creative and will understand how you can change things and how you should dare to change things and explore things. Also, I guess I learned to, to practice with, with much less time on my hands and I became tougher. I, I, think, I think my main motto is to keep going, not let things stop me from playing because there are really one zillion things a day that will make sure that I can't practice or that I will feel like I'm underprepared or, or this or that. And I feel, I just feel that I can't let these things win over my, my wish to play. And in, in fact, years ago, when, when I heard uh, Istvan Matus, a Hungarian flautist play, and I really, really admire him. He plays so differently from me, so differently. And I just thought, oh my God, if you continue something for so long with a certain intensity, there is something born out of that which is so powerful and beautiful. And, and nobody can do that for you, only yourself. And, and so that is kind of my lifeline. Uh, I guess I also became more fearless on stage, we, we can say, because with all these life experiences and having children, I just understood that uh, one concert is one concert. There are heavier things out there. And I guess, I guess when I was younger, I took it more seriously in this sense. Has your inner critic changed? It has, but I think I'm very critical. I, I'm always very critical. I could be less critical. This is something I think I could improve. I think mainly now the difficulty is that I'm, I'm overall critical because there are so many things at the moment, really, there are so many things that I'm doing and I'm trying to do them all to a, a, you know, to a pretty high level. Let's say I, I really am trying to, to be a good partner to my husband and to support his amazing career and really be next to him because there are so many complicated situations or I'm trying to be there for my children or I'm trying to cook and provide a really warm home and you know then I want to be a, a cutting edge player and a very caring teacher and you know all of that and it's just 
it's just too much. It's 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 too much. This so how, is... do you, how do you prioritize the balls that you're juggling? <laughs> so so it means that in my heart, I I could devote so much more to each of them, and they, yet they are all so important that I can't just say I let go and of mm -hmm. any because you I, I I just can't. So are you better at time allocation now? I'm I'm certainly better at time allocation, and what I try to do is 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 I really try to see where I need to lean to in that certain moment. So now this uh, part needs more, now that part needs more, and then I, I lean into that. But that still means that once, let's say, situation improved on that front, I realize, oh my God, there is the other, oh my God, there is the other. And I guess this is what I need to learn more patience with, is to accept, okay, here's what I chose. I chose to want to do so many things and this is how it is. And, you know, it's just like a circus act that you catch each ball in that one moment when it would fall, but it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like, it's this kind of thing. And, and I think, I guess, until the point I have done less things, I was just knowing they're all up in the air. And, I, and that made me think, okay, it's fine. They are all up in the air. And now I'm always having to catch them before they fall. But that's also the, it also means that the whole thing goes on the next level, right? Because that's already a thing that you would admire in a circus. Whereas the other one is, is less, so I guess. So that would, in essence, then give you a lot more freedom when you're taking a piece of music to perform that. Because you're looking at the the context, you're looking at the construct that the composer wants, but you can draw so much now because you're juggling lots of things. I guess and, so. Yeah. I think it's also the depth to it. So so the juggling so many things, but, but what it means. I think, I guess, also when you become a parent, you are responsible for another person's life. And, and, and you can be responsible for another person's life in so many ways, not only by having children. So, so, but, but, I, for example, I was lucky not to have seriously ill family members until that point or so. I, I wasn't in this caring position before. Lots of people are, but, but for me, this was a huge change in this kind of, of seeing human relationships also on another, on another level. I think when you are that vulnerable as a child or as someone that is dependent on you in a different way than your partner, uh, teaches you a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I think. How do you balance? So you're a soloist, you're a chamber musician, orchestral flutist, teacher, and you record CDs. Yes. And there's anyone that's ever produced and made us their own CD will know the complications <laughs> and the, I would say heartache, but it's not really heartache. It's just emotional effort that goes into yeah. making a CD. You're a mother, you're a teacher. Where is Naomi? <laughs> It's all who, of who it. Is who is because... It's all of it. By the way, the recording, going back to the recordings, I feel like I really, really enjoy recordings and I really want to do more. I feel like it's a time in my life where I really, really want to record. I think I learn from recording so much. And I think it's a beautiful thing to want to perfect something in that one moment of your life and to have that. and to be able to listen back to it. I think it is in a way very different than listening back to a wonderful concert recording, which is differently really nice. But I think it's something that I immensely enjoy at the moment. 
And I just feel like I really, really want to make sure to continue with it because I think it is something that will really add to the artist that I, that I am. Where am I? I think it's a great question because often people ask me how do I recharge or when do I, I don't know, when do I take a holiday or whatever. And I think from a very early age onwards, because I went to a very competitive school and I went next to that competitive school, I went to the conservatory later on. I lived in different countries. Then I, for some time, I went to one university, but then I did for years parallel universities or music academies. My husband did the same and I think I think there was always so much more than one person would do and I had this technique of escaping from the one thing to the next. So I feel like this is also what I do. I kind of like, as you said, the color changes, like I just shift, I guess. It's also a way of maybe escaping. But what I discovered is that also it's not a way of escaping, but it's like a way of escaping from things to narrow or or really stiffen or really get harsh in a situation so when I have another place to go doesn't mean that I left it there but but I'm not cooking in it mm -hmm. in a in a sense so so I think having so many things allows me to to kind of like vanish from one to the other and then back and then kind of it feels like while I am away something is growing there and then I can go back and kind of move on more easily than if I would be all the time there. So somehow I really admire people who can build careers like, for example, just being a professor or just being an orchestral flutist or just like, uh, I don't know, writing about music. Because to me, it always feels like it, it gets so much. I think I can't bear it because it feels like it is getting hard on the edges. In this way, I can get away from that. And I'm hoping that I still can raise the standards so high that, that I'm not missing out. If you could write a letter to your 16-year-old self, what advice would you give now? Ooh, what advice would I give now to myself? Knowing what you do know now. You know what? I don't know what advice I would give myself. I think I'm pretty happy with what I have done because I think what advice would I give myself implies a little bit if I had to correct something yes, or if I yep. wanted to be someone different. Mm -hmm. I think it's fine what I have done and I, and I think that's what I propose to everyone. I don't think the real matter is what you have done, but if you if you feel like something is not the way you want, then you... It is the moment to change it, change it, however. So it is really about which way you are going and from, okay, I'm here and, and this is what I want to do. And I, that's where my focus lies. And, and I don't think I should be giving advice to myself backwards in a sense. I don't know if there is anything I could say. Also, I wouldn't say people should ruminate too much about what, what they have done they should ruminate about what they are doing now and what they want to do and how they do that and make sure to do it in the best possible way yeah and go from where you are i guess that is probably the the most genuine answer i've ever been given <laughs> a lot of people that i speak to would say you know concentration or take every opportunity or don't worry but i like the fact that you're just very open and just say let's not look back and I totally agree. It's the only thing that is important is now. 
you know, we can learn from what we've learned. And as a 16 year old, there's a naivety there, which is joyful. And if you're going to write a letter to that 16 year old as an older person, in a way, you're sort of tinkering on the edges with that mm. naivety. So uh, I applaud you for your answer. Mm -hmm. I think Thank that you. is uh, yeah, very, very genuine. So who has been the biggest influence in your life? either as a musician or oh, as an individual? Uh, well, as an individual uh, and both as a musician, I would say my husband and my family, I think. Um, mainly because my, I'm lucky to have a husband who is a musician. He is also Gergely Madarash, uh, he's also a flutist and conductor and really, really brilliant, brilliant musician. And because we have been together now for, I don't know, I even can't count 22 years or something like that. I stopped counting in a way. It means that I have spent more than half of my, well, more than, well, well, yeah, well, more than half of my life with him, let's say. But also my parents, my parents are, I think, just genuinely really motivated, super interested people. They always supported me and believed in me and uh, they both love the arts. They are academics, so not artists, but uh, they do appreciate art and music. I think I'm just super, super lucky to, to therefore have this immensely strong network and support and believe. And I, I have to say, uh, you asked about being critical. And, and I think I'm so lucky that all of them can give me very valuable critique, but which is also really forward pointing. So really intended in a way that I grow from it. Yeah, so I just, I, I really rely on them. And then after that are my children as well, because I think they really also provide an incredible foundation and, and the way they handle situations, the way they, they actually behave in situations really inspire me. So I would say that, and of course, on top of that, again, I guess I'm so lucky. I, I think I meet so many interesting people from all sorts of sectors. And that's partially why I love being in London as well. I guess, I think um, I have lived in so many different places, but of all places, London, I feel is a, is a real melting pot of people with so many different backgrounds, different life journeys. But there are also so many people who are really motivated or maybe because of the hugeness of the city and the harshness of it as well it also really ignites this drive in people i guess it really does i feel and i love that i love that because i guess that's the motor of things so so you really feel alive i i feel people are really alive and let's hope that that is in the positive way and not pre not being bringing people down this pressure, but it can really raise things to, to a super high level, I think. Naomi, I feel that you're alive in talking to you. <laughs> I feel that you're alive in these gorgeous cakes, but more importantly, I feel you're alive in your music. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. You're off to thank Budapest you. again tomorrow. Yes, it's true. So lots of packing uh, is planned for today.
and you are a joy to speak to. Thank you. I learn so much when I speak to, and if I, my only regret is I didn't have the, the machine uh, recording when we spent an hour beforehand just chatting about general things because you know, you're just a, such a, you, you have such a good and interesting life story that I think all the parts need to come out and no doubt they do in your music. Thank you. Thank you so much to Noemi and also to you for listening this week. Don't forget to like and rate this podcast on whatever provider you're listening to this on. And also pop along and like or follow us at Talking Flutes on Instagram and Facebook. If you have any questions that you'd like to put to Claire and I, then it's at flutepodcasts at gmail.com. Until next time, wishing you a musically fulfilling week ahead with whatever you've got planned. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.